Today, I am honoured to be speaking with Dr. Stephen R.C. Hicks. He is the Professor of Philosophy at Rockford University, Illinois, USA. He is the Executive Director of the Center of Ethics and Entrepreneurship, and he is a Senior Scholar at the Atlas Society. And he hosts the Open College podcast, where he answers questions such as, does power corrupt? And did coffee give us the enlightenment? He also has four books in 2004, Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault. In 2010, Nietzsche and the Nazis. In 1994, The Art of Reasoning, Readings for Logical Analysis, co-edited with David Kelly. And in 2016, Entrepreneurial Living, co-edited with Jennifer Hero. His writing has been translated into 16 different languages. He has published in academic journals such as Business Ethics Quarterly, Teaching Philosophy and Review of Metaphysics, as well as other publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Cato Unbound and the Baltimore Sun. I mean that is an introduction and a half. Stephen Hicks has some incredible accomplishments. But I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to leave a review on um, iTunes or whatever streaming platform you listen on and subscribe. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast with Dr. Stephen Hicks. show pleasure so first of all I'd, I'd like to talk about a video i watched the other day actually uh are we live and running or just yeah uh, yeah we're live and running we're live and running now we're all good. live um i'd like to talk about a video i watched the other day which was your debate with thaddeus russell mm, okay i enjoyed it very much uh it, it, it talked about postmodernism, right uh so first question is is there going to be any other debates in the near future for you? Uh, I hope so. There are always behind the scenes conversations about people putting together various teams and packages. Uh, nothing definite yet. Okay. I'm looking forward to when that happens, by the way. <clears throat> Me too. They're fun. So why is postmodernism so relevant today is my first real question. Well, uh I think it became relevant because it was a lively intellectual movement in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and it then succeeded in attracting a large number of graduate students and people who went on to prominent roles in cultural life. And things reached a tipping point, I would guess, maybe 10 years or so ago. And we started to see it then spill out into popular culture. So that not only academics and intellectuals are aware of it, but people are seeing it in the business world, particularly in uh, uh, in the political world and other aspects of culture. So is it is it right for me to say that um, your your book sales of your book uh, explaining postmodernism from Rousseau to Foucault, uh, has the sales gone up recently? The uh, sales were steady for the first 10 years of its publication. 
And then uh, uh, we started to notice an uptick in kind of late 2014, 2015. And then, uh, uh, so we were wondering what was going on with that, but it seemed to map onto the spill out into popular culture. And then uh, in 2017, there was another spike in sales when uh, Jordan Peterson, especially, but then some other uh, prominent intellectuals started talking about the book and those themes yes, as well. That's how I actually found out about your book uh, ah. through other intellectual videos like Jordan Peterson. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, so 2004, 2014 or so, and then another two to three years where uh, things were picking up and then picking up a lot in the last two years. So, is it correct for me to say, now I'm not sure if this is correct, but is it correct for me to say that in the last three years, postmodernism is more relevant than in the last six years? I say it's more relevant in popular culture and in legal circles than previously. Uh, the way things seem to work, uh, at least this is one channel, if you think in terms of an, a production line, is that high theory is developed uh, by academics. Those academics then in turn train teachers and journalists and people who are going to become lawyers uh, and business executives. Those people then achieve some prominence in their sub areas of culture. And at that point, it then becomes a popular movement. Uh, so that's uh, depending on which uh, part of the relevance story you're interested in. Mm. So when I found out about you, I had no idea what postmodernism was. So I've yes. been trying to I've been trying to grapple with the topic itself. It's yes. very tough. It's incredibly difficult Absolutely. to grapple with. But what I what I sort of um, got from it is that there's not many positives that are in postmodernism. So could you just tell me what's actually good about postmodernism? Yeah. <clears throat> well, my short answer to that is nothing, but that's me as a philosopher speaking. Uh, postmodernism represents a rejection of all of the major tenets of modern thinking, particularly enlightenment thinking. Uh, so if you believe in the power of reason and science and independent judgment and seeing people as responsible for their own lives and having a broadly liberal democratic republican political system with a market friendly economy uh, that you believe the world can solve all or most of its problems and we can make progress. If that's your belief position, and that's the modern enlightenment position, postmodernism uh, is a rejection of all of that. It believes either that those beliefs were maybe well-intentioned, but led to terrible pathological consequences that postmodernism is diagnosing, or uh, more darkly, postmoderns believe that those philosophical and other cultural beliefs were just wrong from the outset. They were a cover story for some darker agenda, and so they are rejecting that. Now, what I would say, though, is that people who find themselves attracted to postmodernism, uh, the elements that they are attracted to usually are themes that moder modernism had already sounded. So one of the things uh, that postmoderns uh, will emphasize as a starting point is, look, there are lots of individuals out there and members of certain groups that have been beaten up on by the powers that be. They are marginalized, they are oppressed. And what we need to do is be aware of their situation and be sensitive to their situation 
And if there are inappropriate power structures that are stopping those individuals from putting together the best life that they can possibly have, we should be doing something about that. Now, that is many people's kind of popular level understanding of postmodernism, but that is a modernist theme. The, the modernists have been arguing that for three centuries, that there are oppressive power structures that individuals are being uh, uh, undermined and kept back from, and we need to be attentive to those so that individuals can pursue their, their best lives. Uh, if you uh, think uh, that we need to have a creativity that oftentimes in, uh, in, our, in our more aesthetic and artistic do, uh, dimensions of our lives, that there's all of this top-down rule-governed things, you know, that you can't use these colors in various combinations or you can't speak to these themes. And so we're about blowing up the rules uh, and giving people free creative space to do what they want. That is a theme that some postmoderns will sound, and that is, of course, attractive to people. But again, that's not a uniquely postmodern theme. That is what the modernists have been saying for three centuries. So in some senses, postmoderns are piggybacking on the positive themes of modernism and sometimes giving them a, another twist. But ultimately, uh, the big principled positions that postmodernism is advocating, I think they're just wrong. So could you say that there are social postmoderns and political postmoderns, like like social looking at the creative side and political looking at the skeptical of everything, like that side, sure. the whole rape is sure. wrong, rape is not real, things like that? Yes, absolutely, sure. And to that, uh, I would add a third, that there are those for whom postmodernism is merely an epistemological strategy, that, uh, you know, that knowledge is difficult, and if you become very skeptical, uh, you'll you'll come to say, well, maybe we should give up on the idea of knowledge and just retreat to everybody has their own stories. And for those individuals, the social and the political is not particularly relevant. But a robust postmodernism is going to have the knowledge component or the epistemological component. It's going to have a social analysis and it will have a political agenda as well. Okay, so in sort of relation to postmodernism, if we look at capitalism and socialism, yes. there's there's very um, clearly sort of a war raging on between the two, right? They're not they're not things that that are agreeable with each other. Yes, that's that's fairly safe to agree. Um, where and how can political balance be struck between socialism, postmodernism, and capitalism? And are the three more reconcilable than might appear? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that's, a, that's actually a very hard question. Obviously, uh, yeah, capitalism, speaking uh, loosely, is a, a system of individualism. People should yes. be fully responsible for their own lives. You give people total freedom to make whatever they want, trade with anybody they want, set their own prices, consume whatever they want. So it's a total individual freedom system. Socialism in its strong form is a kind of collectivism. We belong to society. We should all be working together for the good of society as a whole and sharing all of society's fruits right, uh, uh, together as well. What both socialism and capitalism traditionally have though is a realist orientation that there are, we are human beings with genuine needs, with real identities, that we're operating in a world that works a certain way 
that there are general standards for of morality and political morality, justice, fairness, rights, and so on. Uh, so in that sense, postmodernism amounts to a rejection both of capitalism and socialism. So what it does want to say is you know, there is no such thing as human nature with, uh, with definite needs, physical and or psychological. Uh, everything ends up being a kind of social construction and there are just different, in, uh, different groups and different individuals and we can't say that there is such a thing as human nature. And there is no such thing as justice and truth and universal human rights. Instead, what we have is competing groups, each with their own moral vocabularies, and they are in collision with each other. So in that sense, uh, postmodernism amounts to a rejection of both socialism and capitalism, which is why if you talk to orthodox Marxists and uh, mainstream postmodernists, they, they hate each other. They do hate each other legitimately on, on foundations. At the same time, if you just look at the political adversaries, you don't find any postmodernists or, or very few uh, who are advocates of any sort of robust individualism, free market capitalism, that liberalism is a progressive society for the future. Almost all of the postmoderns, particularly of the first two generations, were coming out of left and usually fairly far left political uh, uh, part of the spectrum. And so if you just focus on the political themes and what they see to be their adversaries, both the postmoderns and the socialists uh, see capitalism as their enemy. Okay, so sort of sounds like postmodernism is a bit like a grumpy teenager. <laughs> <laughs> well, there uh, are people who want to give a more uh, uh, adolescent psychological interpretation of postmodernism. Yeah. That, that I think uh, uh, there are some postmodernists who fit that description, absolutely, but I think mm. ultimately that's, that's too reductionistic. So would, would that line ever be able to be struck without one side bending over backwards for it? The line. Uh, well, yeah, part of your earlier question uh, or package of questions uh, is to say, where would we draw the line? What I would say right now is if you look at the major developed nations of the world, so uh, I assume you're in Great Britain. Yes. Uh, yeah. from, from your voice, right in Australia. Yeah. I'm from Canada, originally now living in the United States. So if we take those as exemplar nations, right now they are a mixture. Yeah, they all have you know, significant capitalist market-friendly elements, but they also have significant socialistic elements, uh, huge yeah. governments. Uh, democratic countries. Yes, that's right. And so what I, my, this is if you do the social science and you say, you know, there are 15 major dimensions of a society and to what extent are, is each of those dimensions rather uh, free market in which uh, is government controlled. We're somewhere in the middle with the mixes being more or less, depending on which country you're talking about. So the line uh, has not been drawn, but it's a it's a shifting line uh, across each generation. And so far, uh, what we've settled on for the last 200 years or 300 years of modernity is somewhere in the middle. Is uh, that is that line possible, though? Because there's there's lots of arguments where utopia is impossible, even if everyone's happy go lucky trying to live their life, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the way I think about this, if we start to drill down on this, is uh, 
take North America. This is the, the culture I know best. I would say that basically the capitalist position has won if you are talking about sex, if you are talking about religion, and if you are talking about art. Because there what we say in sex, for example, is anybody can date whomever they want. Uh, you can have sex with whomever you want. You can get married or not get married. You can have as many children as you want. So what we're doing in that area of human life is saying pure individualism. As long as you're respectful of the basic freedom rights of other individuals, anything goes. Anybody can participate, uh, offer themselves on the, on, on the romantic market, so to speak, decide whom they're going to uh, in, in, in change with and what kind of deals they're going to, to work out with those people. There's nobody right, significant saying we should have government management of human beings, sex, and romantic lives, deciding how many sexual partners you have, what their health should be, ensuring that there's no false advertising, and so forth. So we are totally libertarian uh, on, on, uh, on sex, and I think that's, that's great. The same thing with respect to religion. Uh, we have separation of church and state. You're free to make up your own religion, to adopt any of the existing religions you want, uh, or to say none of the above. You can go to church or synagogue or mosque, or you can make your own. Uh, you can basically do whatever you want and associate or not with anybody on a like-minded fashion in, uh, in the religious sphere. So the libertarian, essentially free market position has prevailed there. I think pretty much the same thing would be said for the art culture. The arts, uh, almost all of the artists I know are uh, setting aside politics deeply libertarian, right? It's in their genes, it's in their bones. Don't you tell me what to do, what to make, what to produce. Uh, and then on this consumer side, uh, we're pretty much laissez-faire and so forth. So in that sense, if we then, this is too crude, if we said, you know, culture is made up of people's you know, sex and romantic lives, their religious and belief lives, uh, their artistic lives and, and leisure lives, and then their kind of economics and business lives, we're already three quarters of the way libertarian. It's just when we start talking about money, when we start talking about business, then a lot of people change their tune very dramatically. They will say, no, 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 I don't want the government to be in my bedroom or in my art studio or following me around in, uh, when I'm doing my religion. But as soon as we start talking about business and money, then they get all controlling and semi-socialistic or whatever. So it really strikes me as that the, the main cultural battle between uh, kind of modern individualism and modern collectivism is in the economics and money sphere. And therefore, for, for various reasons, obviously money is an important value, how we conduct our business, how we make a living. Those are deep chords and people are starting from very deep, uh, deeply different intuitions about what's fair, appropriate, uh, how much we can trust people or not. And that's the big capitalism versus socialism debate we've been having for two centuries. So things like um, things like sex, art, and what what else was it that you said? The art, sex, art, and were well, those the two religion? Religion uh, as well. Yeah. Yes. So those those three can sort of represent nature in a way. Sex can obviously represent nature, right? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by saying that it represents nature. So it's a, it's a natural thing. It's something that um, that's always happened. It happens with animals. It happens in the world of nature, right? Sure. Um, art and religion with tribalism, 
sure. you look back with the cavemen. Uh, and, and nature's a naturally conservative thing, correct? It's survival of the fittest. Possibly, yeah. But at the same time, even if you just take sex, there will be uh, people, uh, and you say animals engage in sex, there, there are political philosophies. They're not very prominent right now. Uh, and the socialists of both the nationalist and the internationalist variety have signed on to that. Say so yes, sex is a natural impulse and so forth, but nonetheless, it needs to be government managed. Right? That we need to have uh, uh, deciding what the population is going to be, uh, mandatory birth control or not, mandatory abortions or not, all the way to the extent of saying that the government really should be selecting which males are going to breed with which females and uh, how many are going to be produced. So in the early days of the, social, uh, of the Soviet Union, in the early days of Nazi Germany, uh, obviously in communist China, there's a long history on the far left of saying, yes, sex, sex might be natural, but nonetheless, uh, we're not just going to leave it to survival of the fittest according to individual judgments. This is something that we need to have state management, right? that we need to, uh, you know, just as farmers manage their herd, we need to have wise politicians managing the human herd for, for, for quality and quantity control reasons. So, so, could, so, it doesn't, could, so it doesn't set aside the political and ethical arguments to just say that it's a natural process that everybody engages in. Could North America work if it was fully libertarian? So it's not just sex, art and religion. It's yeah. everything. Could well, it work? My view is that North America works to the extent that it is libertarian. That is to say, stuff gets done and people are happy and they are flourishing to the extent that they are in charge of their lives and they are free to put together their lives in a way that they judge fit. Uh, and uh, that to the extent that they are protected in their ability to do so. So I do believe I'm a limited government person. There is a role for the state, but the role of the state should be severely limited to protecting individuals' uh, liberty rights, their right to life, their, uh, their, uh, their property rights, uh, essentially. So the economy flourishes to the extent that we have an entrepreneurial market-oriented economy. Uh, uh, religion works and belief systems work to the extent that people are free to explore and make their own choices. Relationships work to the extent that people make their own choices and their own commitments in relationships. What we do have, unfortunately, is extraordinarily productive society, uh, but a lot of people are parasitic on that. And I think 90% of the political class is parasitic on the actual productive energies in all spheres of culture that people, to the extent that they are free, are, are generating. Okay. So, are you aware of something called pull-out culture? Yes. Public denunciation. Yes. It's quite prominent in universities. Yes. So, you're a, you're a professor of philosophy at Rockford, Rockford, Illinois, correct? Yes, Rockford University, yes. Yes. Um, have you ever been affected? You directly, have you ever been affected by call-out culture in a university? Uh, not in the sense that people have uh, doxed me and so forth. Uh, so, no, but uh, you know, the only way it has affected me is that, you know, obviously among some of my colleagues, uh, there are people who don't like me for my views. And more broadly in the intellectual community, there are people who will attack me, sometimes fairly, some un sometimes unfairly, but that's, I think, just par for the course.
Okay. Um, does this, uh, are you mindful of uh, over careful speech and does this produce suboptimal lectures? Not, not for me. I know that there are many, many faculty members and they will talk about this at conferences and in private conversation who will say that they are uh, very careful and they have, uh, about what they say. And in many cases, it just many issues that they have taught for years that they just don't teach those issues anymore because they're afraid that uh, uh, someone will uh, overhear the wrong thing or take something out of context or just decide to make it an issue. And then given uh, the fragility of due process on many American campuses right now, uh, they have no confidence that they would uh, be able to prevail, even if they are well-meaning people doing good ed education. But for me personally, it, it's not a change how I affect my, uh, do my teaching. I'm an advocate of uh, liberal arts teaching in the John Stuart Mill sense. My view is that uh, my, my students are all adults. I will treat them like adults, but what young adults need is on any controversial issue uh, to be aware of both or all of the, the important positions, including all the positions that I disagree with personally, but they need to know what those positions are. They need to know the best arguments for and against each one. So I tell them up front, my classes are always going to be about putting those arguments in collision. And we're always reading the, uh, the best people that I, I think are on both sides of the debate. So all of my syllabi are posted online. Uh, anyone can check those things out. And of course, some students, uh, I know they will melt away from the class because they have their convictions already and they don't want them to be challenged. But vast majority of students, that's why they are there. They want that. They want yeah. to learn. They know that they, yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. know everything. They might uh, think that they're pretty smart. Of course, a lot of them are very smart. And they might have been thoughtful uh, that they're going to be unsettled, but uh, uh, they actually want to, to be educated. So I think if you're upfront about it and you, sh you, you walk the walk as a professor, you uh, respect other students or the students when they uh, are voicing opinions and doing their best to try to understand positions and they take a position in a paper uh, and they know that they're not going to be downgraded uh, because professor might disagree with them then that's when beautiful things happen in education. I think that's the only way to teach. So that's what I do. So you've never you've never had to had a serious concern for over careful speech then? Uh, no, I, I think partly the job of a professor is to model civility. Obviously, when we're arguing controversial issues, uh, it's easy for our emotions to, to get riled up and so forth. And at that point, we start saying inappropriate things. But part of the job of the professor is, you know, that's that is your lifestyle to deal with controversial things and to be able to discuss them with other people in a productive way. And so part of my job is to model civility, even if you know the positions that I think are important are under attack. And uh, even when I think a very good argument is being made for a position that I disagree with, never resorting to the cheap shots, the ad hominems, the shutting down discussions and so on. So. So I, uh, uh, I think I've got good habits and now years of experience of doing it. So I think I can trust myself to, to have a good argument and I'm not going to turn into a raging monster. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have saved many arguments slash debates with my uh, family just by saying, um, are you willing to change your opinion about this that's, topic? Yeah, that's a very good starting point. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's and a good first question to have. Yes, that's right. Or ask, you know, what, what kind of evidence would count 
as an evidence against your position. You know, if if the data said this, would you take that seriously? And just put it in hypothetical form, and yeah, getting that clear is uh, is important. Just to go back to your debate with Thaddeus uh, Russell quickly, mm. did you feel like he was willing to change his opinion? Uh, I think so. Um, yes, my sense is that he's a he's an overall honest guy. I think he's a good historian. I've read some of his stuff, but I do think that he's weak on philosophy. And uh, you know, some of the positions that he's advocating are philosophical positions. But my sense just was that he has had a partial philosophy education. Uh, uh, you know, and he is a PhD and he has thought about these issues, but he's just not aware of some of the alternatives that are out there. So my sense is that if in you know, a sit down seminar, uh, you could become to be aware, he would give them some consideration, make some more fine grained distinctions and his positions would become more nuanced. I definitely noticed um, when you gave your point, he replied with, well, your quotes are wrong. And ah. that was that was it. <laughs> Yes, right. I and so I, I did, and, and you after, wonderf you wonderfully replied with, "I'll send everyone the quotes." Right, and then uh, I did post at my website about a week after. There were several people emailed me, so I posted the quotes there with the sources to check those out. But again, that's a that's a difficult issue, uh, and not to criticize Thaddeus, we can't all know everything. Uh, so he knows a lot more about history than I do. And as, uh, but a point about many of these important thinkers like Thomas Kuhn and Quine and, and the others, it's very easy to have a superficial reading of them and not to know the full context. And so to, uh, to have an, an overly soft interpretation of what they are, they are arguing for. So my last big question for you is uh, about universities teaching methods. Yes. Um, so what's your views on the current teaching methods? Uh, are they too ideolo ideologically driven? Um, is this, uh, are students emerging prepared for life enough or are they, uh, you know, just working themselves up into a debt and then not able to do anything with their degrees or anything? Yeah, that's, a, that's an important question. Uh, universities are big places. So I think immediately you have to break the university down into some of its constituent parts. So. My sense is that most of the professional schools, medicine, business, and so forth are healthy and students get first rate educations there and that's good. Most of the natural sciences are, are very healthy. The problem areas are the closer you get to the humanities. And yes, where you can have opinions. That's well, yeah, and, and where uh, the issues are in some ways much more complicated because human beings are extraordinarily complicated beings. Uh, and it's easier for people to be more ideological. But even there, it, you know, history can be very ideological, but there's a lot of excellent history being done. And at the same time, there's a lot of just purely politicized ideological history being done. So it's a, it's a mixed case. I think my home discipline of philosophy is relatively healthy. Most philosophers, I think, are, are doing good work, even the ones that I disagree with significantly. They're working the territory. There is a significant minority of philosophy professors who are extraordinarily ideological and, and not teaching well and so forth. My view, though, is that it is the special studies areas that have become uh, a kind of, uh, using this as neutrally as possible, a kind of intellectual ghetto 
of only like-minded people speaking to only like-minded people and that most of the people in there are half educated in the sense that they have only been exposed to one part of the intellectual spectrum that's all that they are interested in and so they're talking to themselves and for many of them they're not especially interested in uh, in the intellectual issues they're intellect interested in training activists so yeah. there are some pockets of the university very prominent uh, it's hard to put numbers exactly to it and how much of it is a matter of some uh, them being more outspoken activists tend to be obviously a lot more outspoken than people who are going to say on the one hand on the other and let's look at the history of this so uh, uh so the short answer to your question is it really depends and you have to get granular about the university very quickly I picked up on your word training activists. So yes. Are activists trained, not taught then? Yes, absolutely. And uh, when you start reading in some of the postmodern inspired journals, uh, many of the people who are writing there will be, they'll be very explicit about it. Uh, our goal is to, to take theory and make it practical. And some of them this, will explicitly, this, let me just say, this, you know, explicitly quote Marx, for example, that the point is not to theorize, the point is to change the world. And they are saying the theory is done. I know I have the right answers, putting right in, in quotations Mark and, or Marx, and I'm just here to uh, breed another generation of activists. Is this just activists on the left or on the right? Because you can have freedom of speech activists that, you know, are they, are they uh, trained or are they taught? Well, I think freedom of speech activists are taught because every single one of them that I know, they are very well aware of all of the arguments against free speech. They have studied those and they've studied the best uh, advocates of them. So they know the arguments of Plato. They know the arguments of Augustine. They know the arguments of the uh, of the Marxists. They know the arguments of the postmodernists. So there's nothing wrong with being an activist, uh, but that's not primarily what universities are for. Universities are primarily for, yeah, yeah. Uh, at the theory end, and that's studying both or all of the, the theories. So by activist in the pejorative sense in a university context, I mean someone who really is not at all interested in the arguments does not know the arguments for the positions that they are, are opposed to, simply has a set of beliefs and is functioning as an evangelist, to use a religious metaphor, or uh, as, a, as, a, as, as someone in a seminary, where, you know, again, to use a religious metaphor, you know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to be a priest and I get a good liberal arts education, but then I go to seminary because I'm training for a given profession. And there are many professors uh, who are activists. Most of them are on the left. That's another part of the question that you asked currently. Uh, and they are, in effect, training their priests to go out and be evangelists to spread the good word. And that's it. it. it it's the uh, activists that work in mob mentality that are trained, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so by the time they get uh, the activists out on the street, yeah, they are two generations or, or actually two intellectual steps. They don't even know the arguments. They're just committed to their beliefs and willing to do just about anything. But yes, there are uh, activists on the right, and some of them are in a university setting. Uh, I don't have the good numbers to it, but uh, all of the surveys I have seen is that people who are on the far right uh, tend to be a fairly tiny minority in academic contexts 
we might see a resurgence of them because uh, the, in the popular culture and the political culture, they are a resurgent movement uh, after being in the political wilderness for 60 or 70 years. So uh, how many of them will make their way into the academic world over the next generation? I don't know. I think that's a wonderful place to leave off. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. I, My I pleasure. Hope, Good question. I hope to uh, speak to you again at some point soon. Um, good luck with everything. And thank, thank, you for, thank you for being a guest. Thank you for tuning into this week's show. Also, thank you to Stephen Hicks for coming on the show. And if you liked any of the topics we spoke about, there'll be an article on my website, tbbts.co. There'll be an article on postmodernism, and it'll be going through the questions I asked him. Uh, there'll also be links to Stephen Hicks-related videos, such as his debate with Thaddeus Russell. And unfortunately, due to the complications of Skype, the last 15 seconds of the interview cut off. So that's why it sort of ended quite abruptly. Also, every Thursday in the UK, there'll be a new podcast episode up. So remember to tune in on Thursday.